You're listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. At this point in our worship gathering, we always spend some time praying. And if you listen to the content of what we pray, you'll notice that oftentimes what we are praying for are church planters that we are helping to support and that we're wanting to see God work in their context and their church and their city. And so because that's something we believe very deeply in, we spend time praying for it. If you're relatively new to Coram Deo, you need to know that as part of our connection to the Acts 29 network, uh, 10% of all the financial resources that we take in, we push back out to fund the work of church planting really throughout the world, but especially in our own region, our own part of the country to which we feel a great sense of stewardship and calling from God. And so um, we have a great privilege this morning because next month, uh, one of our guys with Acts 29 is getting ready to launch a church in Davenport, Iowa. His name is Justin Dean. He's actually been living here in Omaha for the last year with his family and going through a residency over at Core Community Church, which is our partner, Acts 29 Church in the city. And so as we prepare to pray this morning, I wanted to ask Justin to come just to give you guys an update of how God has called him, what he's planning to do, and so that you can pray with insight as we get ready to stand behind him in the work in Davenport. So Justin Dean. Thanks, Bob. Good morning. It has uh, been my privilege for the past 15 months or so to be in Omaha. Um, our God is ascending God, and He consistently, through Scripture, calls men out and then equips them and blesses them and sends them out to be a blessing and, and to, to bring His gospel to bear and, and to push that gospel, push that good news out into all the earth. And that's what's happened to us about uh, two years ago. I guess it's pretty close to two years ago. Uh, we were at an Acts 29 assessment and um, sat down with your pastor and Ethan Burmeister from Core Community. And um, they they uh, saw some weaknesses in my character, weaknesses in my heart. And they called they called us out and they said, why don't you come to Omaha? Why don't you come and be equipped for a while? And then we can send you back. And that's what's happened the past 15 months. And it's been um, an absolutely just... I mean, I can't even, I really can't even describe the past 15 months, how my heart's been formed in the gospel, how my wife and my relationships with my kids and my wife and my friends have been shaped and formed. And um, I'm just incredibly excited to uh, now be three weeks out from planting a new church in Davenport, Iowa. Um, Sacred City Church is what we're calling it. Um, I'm, we're praying that God doesn't just build a great church, but he really builds a great city in Davenport. And uh, he uses us to redeem and to restore uh, through the power of the gospel. Uh, we chose the name Sacred City just to reinforce the fact that all of life is sacred. Uh, there's no division between the sacred and the secular. Hebrews 4.13 says that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes to whom we must give account. Um, this false dichotomy between church life and real life is really prevalent in our context. Um, Christianity is reduced to being a good, to being just a good churchgoer. Church is reduced to a building or a meeting on Sunday morning. The gospel is reduced to just a good decision to be made regarding your eternity. Evangelism is reduced to just bringing people to church. And discipleship is an optional endeavor for the elite. The power and the truth of the gospel has been separated from real life in such a way that many people who call themselves Christians have no idea how to live in the culture as salt and light. That's a problem. When we're called and we're sent by God to be his missionaries, that's a problem. We want to see, at Sacred City, it's in my heart that we want to see the gospel move from just part of our Sunday church life to impacting and forming us every day of our life. Uh, Sacred City Church, we exist to bring the gospel into our cities, families, and everyday lives to see Jesus transform the separated into the sacred. We want to see a people of God drawn from the city, equipped and empowered by the gospel, and sent back into the city as missionaries. And the only way we can do that is to make disciples, to make gospel-centered disciples who then make gospel-centered disciples who make gospel-centered disciples, and we could go on and on and on. And the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. And that's what we seek to do at Sacred City Church. So we, we, we do three things. 
We have missional communities that meet throughout the city. Uh, we have our Sunday worship gathering, and we, we, we have what we call fight clubs, where it's gospel formation, gospel-centered discipleship, two-on-two or three-on-three, guys with guys, girls with girls, where they fight the fight of faith together. And uh, that's what we're seeking to do. We've been traveling to the Quad Cities um, every month for the past five months, forming a core, forming a launch team, trying to get some of this gospel-centered DNA um, into the hearts and lives of our people. And by God's grace, we've gathered about 50 people right now. And uh, we are launching, well, we're not really launching. We're launching with missional communities. No open services, but we're launching with missional communities. The 1st of June, we move back. And we are just incredibly grateful for your support, for your pastor's support. Um, He's been a huge blessing to my life personally, my family's life. Um, Our church is blessed by him. We rip rip off all of his stuff. Uh, We just erase his name from it. I mean, he said he's fine with that. So, no, I'm just playing. Uh, but it's just, man, you guys have really, you know, plowed the way for us, and we couldn't be doing what we're doing if it ha- if it wasn't for you and your pastor and your ministry, and we really are thankful for your support. Um, if you're ever four and a half hours east, as a Davenport, stop in. We will uh, we'll welcome you. Um, SacredCityChurch.com. There's a little bit of information there, but not much because we don't have open services yet. Um, but I look forward to meeting you and talking to you if you're interested. So, thank you. Let's spend some time now praying for Justin and for his team. Would you join me in prayer? God, it's been a great privilege uh, for me just to see your grace uh, work out in Justin's life and to see the way that you have called him, uh, equipped him, given him the humility to submit to a season of shaping and development, and now the way that you're sending him back into the very context that he came from to to guide your people forward on mission. And so I want to pray uh, your great grace and favor upon him. I pray your protection on his marriage and on his relationship with his kids. Pray that he would always, first of all, be a Christian and a husband before he is a pastor and a leader. And I pray that he would just, first of all, be a good steward of uh, his family. And then, God, I I would pray that you would um, bless him to lead well the mission in Davenport, that you would bless Sacred City Church, that you would cause your name to be honored, that you would change the city of Davenport, that you would plant other churches around there through Justin and his team and their calling and their influence. And uh, God, we thank you that um, as part of our commitment to church planting, we get to be a part of things that aren't even in our own context and that are four and a half hours away and that we get to be a part of that through funding and through prayer and through serving. And God, we're just grateful that you allow us to have a greater vision than just what you're doing in our own city and our own church. And so, Father, would you give your blessing to Justin and would you equip him and empower him by your spirit to have great influence and to make effective disciples so that Jesus might be worshipped and lifted up in Davenport. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Listen now to the reading of God's word morning, I have the privilege of reading from the Revelation to John, an extended reading, chapters 13, verse 1, through chapter 14, verse 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, every one whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive...
to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The word of the Lord. Well, happy Mother's Day to you if you're a mom. I hope you have a wonderful day celebrating, and I hope you are well-honored and uh, cared for and loved today. Um, I'm dealing with a little bit of a cold, so I I may crash halfway through the sermon. So if I get real quiet and start whispering, it's not for dramatic effect. It just has to do with my voice. Uh, I've had an odd morning already. I uh, chased a would-be burglar out of my garage this morning at 5.30 a.m., and so that was an adrenaline rush. Uh, I got my morning kind of going, so I'm already coming down from that. So we can only go downhill from there, and I'll be napping on my couch in about three hours, and that'll be all. So uh, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, we're in chapters 12 and 13, which is really the heart of the book, as I mentioned last week. What God is doing here is sort of pulling back the curtain on this great cosmic drama that, that underlies all of human history. And I mentioned last week that we, we meet this sort of unholy trinity in these chapters. We meet the dragon, who we talked about last week, uh, the beast from the sea, and another beast from the earth, who is later on called the false prophet. And so this sort of is an unholy trinity, if you will. Now last week we focused on the the dragon, and, and we noted it's talking about Satan. The dragon is explicitly described to be Satan. And that... We're in a war, that life is war, and that, that there's a great conflict, a great cosmic battle between Satan and his kingdom and between God and his kingdom. And what you're going to see this week, last week we just tried to get that squared away and say, hey look, we're in a battle, you have to realize life is war. What I want you to see this week is that the way that Satan wages war, the way that he seeks to work against the purposes of God in the world, uh, are through the two beasts that we meet in chapter 13. And I, I, I just want to warn you, I know I said this already, but this is the part of Revelation where people start to get really weird, right? So do not go home and do a Google search for the mark of the beast, because you will spend the rest of Mother's Day, you know, full of information from the internet and all the speculation about who is the beast and what's the mark of the beast and what is this all about. And so, in order to cut through the fog and try to give you some clarity, I want to do the same thing we did last week, which is to step back earlier in the biblical storyline, to a place in the Old Testament where these exact same images are used, 
so that you can see what Revelation 13 is pointing to and drawing from. And so if you have a a Bible, I want you to flip back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel is a minor prophet. If you get to Ezekiel and turn right, uh, you'll be close. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read uh, an extended reading from Daniel 7. And what I want you to do is to listen and pay attention to what do you hear in Daniel's vision that sounds similar, that reminds you of things we've seen in the book of Revelation. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked as its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told to rise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn were like, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, note that phrase, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospels. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, the Creator, And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings." Who shall arise out of the earth? But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And so you see a lot of similar language to the book of Revelation in this vision that Daniel has. And specifically what I want you to notice is that in verse 17, a a heavenly messenger interprets the vision for Daniel. And what he says is, these four beasts that you saw are four kings. In the rest of the book of Daniel... These are actually identified specifically as the king of the Chaldeans, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Right? These are four world empires who would come shortly after Daniel's time. In fact, the Chaldeans and the Persians were ruling as Daniel was writing. Then came the Greek empire, and then finally the Roman empire. And so what I want you to see in Daniel 7 is there's a contrast here. What, what, what this vision is telling Daniel is, hey, these kings are going to arise. They're going to have temporary, limited dominion for a while. But in contrast to this temporary nature of their rule, there is going to be one, the Son of Man, who will receive an everlasting kingdom, an eternal dominion given to him by God, and who will rule over everything and everyone. Now, With that background, Revelation 13 should seem a little less odd, right? What John is doing in Revelation 13 is he is conflating these four beasts that Daniel saw into one mega image. Okay, so he, if you look in Revelation 13 verses 1 and 2, it says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads 
with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. So four references to the same four beasts that Daniel saw, but they're all combined into one in the vision that John sees. Okay, So John, once again, is intentionally using an allusion to the Old Testament, and he, he's, he's wanting you to see as the reader, look, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kingdom, a king, a ruler, that's kind of like the ones Daniel saw, only different. Now, some people think that this chapter is describing sort of an antichrist figure, one who will arise at the end of time, who has great authority and great power and sort of will institute some kind of one world government. And that is certainly possible. I don't think we can rule that out. But it's not describing only that. If it is describing such a figure, it's not only describing that because, as we've said time and time again, John is writing to the churches in his day and to the church throughout history. And so it's very unlikely that John is writing this to describe only someone who's going to arise at the very end of history. Rather, he's describing the nature of earthly kings and earthly rulers who resist God's will and God's dominion. And so Grant Osborne, a commentator on Revelation, says this, In short, this beast is a composite of all the beasts or empires throughout human history that have stood against God and His people. Okay, The beast represents earthly rulers, earthly kingdoms. In John's day, it was primarily Rome. Okay, In our day, it's Washington and London and Dubai and Beijing. It's earthly kingdoms, earthly centers of power. Last week, I quoted to you from Richard Loveless, who is a wise and insightful thinker about spiritual warfare and spiritual dynamics. I'd like to reference him once again this morning. Listen to what Loveless says. Normally, the destructive malice of Satan against all humanity is channeled through human agents and the systems and institutions they have built. Humanity in general is afflicted by the destroyer through the structures of injustice and oppression. Okay, part of how Satan works his um, destruction is through earthly rulers, earthly kingdoms, earthly institutions that further injustice, oppression, wickedness, greed, and idolatry. And so this is what John is intending to describe, Right? Think about any place in the world where an oppressive government is causing chaos that is destroying the image of God, people, that is making it hard for the gospel to progress, that is causing the church to be persecuted. And you'll see, this is exactly the dynamic that John is describing. It was there in his day, and it's present in our day as well. Now, this first beast is helped, its purposes are furthered by a second beast whom we meet in Revelation 13. Verses 11 and 12. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, or perhaps could be translated on its behalf, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This second beast represents false Religion, pagan religion, especially when it is closely aligned with states and governments and human institutions. Just like the Holy Spirit exists to point people to Jesus and get people to worship Jesus, this false prophet, this second beast exists to point people to the beast and to get people to worship the beast. Now just think about the ways that wicked rulers and false religion work together against the kingdom of God. I mean, remember, in in verse 9, John says, he who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, hey, step back and think about this and and think about what I'm trying to describe here. So, So let me give you a couple of examples. Because sometimes it helps to just step back and look at the sweep of history and say, okay, yeah, yeah, I see that. On January 30th of 1933, Adolf Hitler was elected the Chancellor of Germany. 
If you've studied Hitler at all, you know that he considered Christianity a weak and detestable religion. And he immediately set out to purge it from the landscape of Germany. But Hitler was a cautious and careful leader. And he knew, I can't just stamp out the church because that would be too obvious. His strategy instead was to co-opt the church and to sort of pull it into his orbit from within. Listen to Eric Metaxas and how he describes the strategy. Many leaders of the Third Reich were ideologically opposed to Christianity and wanted to replace it with a religion of their own devising. The Nazi regime intended eventually to destroy Christianity in Germany and to turn the existing Christian churches into Nazi churches over time. And so within three years of Hitler's ascension to power, the German church, all the churches in Germany, had become the Reich Church, led by a bishop whom Hitler had personally appointed, and all the pastors were required to pledge loyalty and allegiance to the Fuhrer himself. Maybe a more current illustration would be helpful as well. In modern-day China... The central communist government allows freedom of worship as long as you worship in a state-registered church. Any church that registers with the state has freedom to assemble and worship. And as you might imagine, it also comes with a certain level of control from the central government. But the backbone of Christianity in China, as you may know, is the unregistered network of house churches that literally are all over throughout the country that's unregistered, they sort of fly under the radar, and they refuse to be subject to the controls of the government. Some of these churches have grown quite large and have become sort of centers for pressing against the lack of religious freedom in China. And so last month, the Shouang Church in Beijing which is one of the largest unregistered churches in China. This is a picture, actually, of their meeting place. They met in in a restaurant that the owner let them meet in. Over a 1,000 people in this house church. It's unregistered. Um, Last month, the restaurant owner who was letting them lease space from him was pressured by the government to evict them, and so he did. And so this church all of a sudden had no place to meet. And so they decided, well, we don't have a building to meet in. We'll just gather outside and worship in the streets. And so they showed up on April 10th, Sunday, to worship outside, 160 people in this church were detained, and the elders were all placed under house arrest. Since then, they have not been able to gather publicly for worship. Make no mistake, uh, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land are alive and well in our day. Oppressive, wicked governments and false religion that conspire together to frustrate the purposes of the kingdom of God are, are Healthy, they're alive and well. This is what John is talking about as he describes these two beasts through which Satan passes his influence. Now, let's just talk, just because we have to, let's talk for a minute about the mark of the beast, all right? What is it? Uh, You know, it's, it's barcodes, that's what it is. I'm kidding. It's not, I don't think. I mean, I guess I can't be sure. Um... There are some people that actually say uh, now that it's the biochip. If you're familiar, if you have a pet, you can get this little microchip implanted in the pet where, you know, if it gets lost, they can tell who it belongs to. There's actually a group of Amish farmers in Michigan right now who are suing the state of Michigan because the state of Michigan requires all livestock to have this biochip tagging so they cannot be identified. And these Amish farmers are saying, listen, this is a mark of the beast, and so we resist and reject the idea that we have to put these in our cattle. This is being decided right now in the court system. Now, if anyone anyone tells you, hey, we need to implant this chip in your wrist so you can buy and sell things at the grocery store, you should resist that, all right? Like, I'm assuming if that would happen, you would go, oh yeah, that's a little weird. I don't think I'm going to go for that, okay? So if it's something obvious like that, I'm fairly sure all of you who are common sense readers of the Bible will go, yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to go ahead and get that inserted in my wrist, okay? But remember, uh, it's much more likely that John is not talking about something that's not going to exist until the 21st century, 
right? He's writing the Word of God to people who lived in his day. He's probably not talking about a technology that wasn't even invented yet. What he's probably talking about is that this mark of the beast is an intentional reference back to Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus 13, what God says to his people is that his law is to be a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. What God is intending in that is all your ways of acting, what you do with your hands, and all your ways of thinking, what you do with your mind, are to be governed by my truth, my law, my ways. And so John is probably referencing that and saying, look, the beast is going to want your wrist and your forehead. The beast is going to ask for ultimate allegiance. The beast wants the, the, the worship and the allegiance that a Christian gives only to the Lord Jesus. The state wants that. Human society wants that. They are going to ask for and demand your ultimate allegiance. And so John is just saying, look, look, make sure you don't fall for that. If you're a follower of Jesus, your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate worship is due only to the Lord Jesus. Now, I hate to break all your conspiracy theories, but the number 666 is probably a reference to the Roman emperor Nero. Okay? Most scholars who study this say that's what's going on here is John is referencing in sort of a veiled way the Roman emperor Nero who was one of the foremost persecutors of the church in the Roman Empire. All right? Now, um, so, so the whole 666 thing is probably just a reference to Nero as a picture of all that's going to come after him, right? So Nero is the personification of Roman persecution of Christians. And what John is saying is like that, after Nero are going to come other, other rulers in other parts of the world who play a similar role, who persecute, who frustrate the worship of God and the progress of the gospel. And so just expect that. Know that that's going to happen. Be aware of it. Have eyes to see what's going on. I thought then we should ask this question. How are we tempted to worship the beast? Because again, the point of Revelation is that it is an unveiling. It's, a, it's supposed to be an unmasking of what really lies beneath reality. I'm assuming that if this passage were literal, if there really was a hideous beast who was going to force you to have the number 666 tattooed on your forehead... Again, you would go, okay, yeah, I can't do that. I mean, that's obviously unbiblical, okay? So I'm assuming that if, if it were that plain on the surface, all of you have the common sense to go, yeah, I can't do that. But remember, that's not how the book of Revelation is written. It is written as an apocalyptic document, okay? It's supposed to be take you some work to get under the surface and figure out, okay, what are these images and metaphors describing? What is John wanting me to see in this? And so, for his readers in the first century, John is wanting them to see the oppressive tactics of the Roman government and the danger of idolatrous false religion and how those two things will work together to work against the kingdom of God. In our day, he wants us to see the same thing. So for us, living in the 21st century in America, how might we be tempted to worship the beast? I want to give you three suggestions. Certainly there would be all kinds of other things we could talk about, but let me give you three suggestions of how I think we are tempted to worship the beast. Here's the first one. I think we're tempted to worship the beast in uncritical reliance on government. In other words, in pledging ultimate allegiance to a country, not to the Lord Jesus. Or to a government, not to the Lord Jesus. You, you realize, don't you, that every government wants to be a functional savior. Every government wants to usurp the role that Jesus alone deserves. The government exists, the way the government stays the government and remain, retains power is by promising to deliver you from whatever functional hell you need to be delivered from. So if hell is a lower income than you'd like, the government can help you with that. If hell is not having health care, the government can fix that for you. 
If hell is not having access to certain services, the government can provide that for you. The nature of government is, is that it is always totalizing. It always wants to usurp the role of protector, provider, savior. So every Christian who knows that Jesus is the only true protector, provider, and savior should have a healthy skepticism toward government leaders, government programs, and an unhealthy and uncritical reliance on government. That's not to say the government doesn't play an important role and that we don't need to rely on them. It's just saying you should have a critical eye for the ways that government seeks to, to control, to retain power and authority, and to essentially save you from whatever your functional hell might be. Sometimes you are going to have to choose to be a good Christian instead of a good American. Let me give you a practical example. In the last decade or so, no matter who's in office and what party is in power, there's been certain economic stimuluses that have been passed, right? And sometimes you get a check in the mail or you might get a bigger tax refund than usual. And what do you always hear when that happens? What is the government always telling you? What is the media always telling you? Spend that! Right? Put that to work by buying yourself a new TV or by, you know, buying some furniture for your house. We need that money in the economy. Spend it, spend it, spend it. Meanwhile, the gospel tells you that you're to live simply, charitably, as a good steward of what God's given, that thrift and simplicity is wise. There are going to be times where you are going to have to say, no, no, I'm to be a good Christian before I'm a good American. My loyalty, my allegiance flows to Jesus Christ, not to the United States economy. The first way I think we're tempted to worship the beast is in an uncritical reliance on government. Here's a second way. In being muzzled by cultural pluralism. Uh, you know that we live in a culture, we live in a time, and we live in, a, in, a, in an age when there's this great push toward the idols of tolerance, pluralism, inclusivity. You're free to believe whatever you want as long as you don't think anybody else should believe that. You're free to worship whatever you want as long as you don't think anyone else should worship the same thing. You're free to have whatever spiritual beliefs you want because after all, all spirituality is good, right? Wrong. Revelation 12, not all spirituality is good. Some of it is demonic. See, in, in sort of that push, that, that impetus that exists toward cultural pluralism, I think what happens for a lot of Christians is, unknowingly, unwittingly, we end up worshiping the beast. Because that muzzles us. It deadens our witness. It silences us. It causes us to be um, hesitant about proclaiming the gospel, about calling people to Jesus, about declaring that there is truth and that God is speaking and has spoken in His Word and in His Son. What's happened in the culture that we live in, in the world we live in, is that facts and values have been separated. There are some things that fall in the category of facts, like math and science, those are facts. But everything related to morality, ethics, and metaphysics, that's all values. So, if you want to live in the world of facts, like 1 plus 1 equals 2, that's great. And there's certain subjects where you need to live in that world. But now, when it comes to your values, those are just personal and there's no overarching truth in that world. Any college sophomore can see the stupidity of that. Right? But that's the world we live in. And so listen, the proclamation, Jesus is Lord, is not a statement of value. It's a statement of fact. It's what we talked about on Easter Sunday. Jesus got out of the grave. History has changed. Jesus has been given everlasting dominion over everything. And Jesus is calling everyone to repent of sin and worship Him. That's a statement of fact, not a statement of value. And so listen, don't be muzzled by the sort of leaning toward cultural pluralism. The gospel is public truth that is to be proclaimed and declared publicly and that has implications for every aspect of life and all of how we live and relate. Now, here's the third way I think we're tempted to worship the beast. In using beastly means for godly ends. 
In other words, using the mechanisms of the state to leverage the work of the gospel. I think we do this so almost intuitively and subtly that we don't even step back and see it for what it is. Let me read to you from James Davison Hunter, a very wise sociologist. Politics has become so central in our time that problems affecting the society are seen increasingly, if not primarily, through the prism of the state. That is, in terms of how law, policy, and politics can solve them. Each and every faction in society seeks the patronage of state power as a means of imposing its particular understanding of the good on the whole of society. Hunter calls this the politicization of culture. What he's saying is our culture has become politicized, and so now what what everybody's trying to do is to grab the levers of political power so we can steer this thing in the direction that we want it to go. And so guess what Christians have done? That, right? Hey, we can play that game. And so you have the Christian right, and you also have the Christian left, right? You have moral majority and you have sojourners. You have Pat Robertson and you have Jim Wallace. And both are steer, are trying to grab the levers of power and steer the thing in their particular direction of here's what God would want for America. All we're doing is using beastly means to accomplish gospel ends. And I want you to see that very implicitly, very subtly, that can be a means of worshiping the beast. Those aren't the mechanisms God has necessarily called us to use. Now, do people need to, do Christians need to serve in government and in leadership? Absolutely. But listen to me. How does, how does the kingdom of God grow? Through the gospel? Through sacrifice? Through humility? Through laying down our lives for the good of others the same way Jesus did? Not through grabbing power and steering things in the direction we want it to go. In all of these ways, we are tempted to worship the beast. Don't do that. It's the point of Revelation 13. Don't worship the beast. Instead, worship Jesus. So let me give you a different vision of your role in the world as a Christian who wants to walk with Jesus and honor him. There's a great writer who's now dead named Leslie Newbigin, who was a bishop in the Anglican church, and a missionary to India for most of his life. Late in his life, in his 70s and 80s, he wrote some very, very insightful critiques of Western culture. Here's what he has to say. All human traditions, institutions, and structures are prone to evil. He's just acknowledging what John is saying and what we've been saying. Every human government, institution, structure is prone toward evil. So what's our response? We are not conservatives who suppose that the gospel is only relevant to issues of personal and private life. Nor are we anarchists who seek to destroy the structures. We are, rather, patient revolutionaries. That's what you're called to be. Patient revolutionaries. Uh, We aren't anarchists. We don't say, well, because structures and governments and false religions are prone to totalizing and to to, to being used for evil purposes, we should just get rid of them. We're not anarchists. We don't believe in destroying the structures. But neither are we conservatives who say, well, the gospel's really, after all, about personal conversion, and so who cares about government systems and structures of injustice and oppression? That's all secular. No. No. We don't fall into either of those categories. Rather, what we are is we are patient revolutionaries, just like Jesus was. We recognize because of the reality of sin, sin twists not just individuals, but systems and cultures and societies and governments. Sin is a bigger problem than we give it credit for. And so we recognize, look, sin has messed up everything. But we also know what's coming is new heavens, New earth, new kingdom. And so what Jesus has given us is the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what we're to do while we're here in between Christ's first coming and his second is to be patient revolutionaries. To prayerfully, patiently work for change 
Work for redemption. Work for restoration. Work to move things in the direction of new heavens, new earth, new kingdom. We we do that patiently. We do it prayerfully. We do it knowing that God is sovereign. God is in control. God is working out his plan for history. And so we don't need to be fretful. We don't need to get it all done tomorrow. But we also do it knowing there really is an enemy. There really is satanic evil and demonic agents present and at work. And so we do it faithfully. We do it, we we are active, but patient. So look, if you're here this morning and maybe you work in one of the structures or systems that we're talking about. Maybe you're an educator and so you work in the education system. Maybe you work for the government in some capacity. Maybe you're in politics somehow. Maybe you're in one of these spheres of life. What are you to do? Well, you're to be a patient revolutionary. You're to live a life for the glory of God and you're to ask the question in that discipline, in that context, what would the kingdom of God coming begin to look like? And let's just start working toward that. This is one of the reasons I love our partnership with In Common Community Development because they get this. They're not out to raise $6 million and change the city tomorrow. Although I'm sure they would take $6 million if you happen to have it with you this morning. right? What they're saying is, look, the city's going to change one neighborhood at a time. So let's start with Park Avenue and do what we can there. And then guess what? As that thing gets restored, we'll step to another neighborhood and start to do some work there. And as that happens, we'll step to another. I mean, we got a lot of time. Jesus is coming back sometime and we don't know when. So while we're here, let's get to work. But let's be patient. Let's be revolutionary. See, really, at the end of the day, it all comes down to Worship. And remember what we've been saying about worship all throughout Revelation. Worship is not what you do with your mouth on Sunday mornings or what you do with your body on Sunday mornings or what we do in this room on Sunday mornings. Worship is what you do with your life. Worship is considering something as ultimate. And so the picture that's being painted for you here in Revelation is, look, if Jesus is ultimate, if God is ultimate, if God is what's most important, then your life will be oriented under allegiance to God first and foremost, and your involvement in the state and in the world and in the structures of society will come second to that. If your ultimate allegiance is not to Jesus, you'll make something ultimate. And guess what? There are plenty of governments, plenty of leaders, plenty of systems that will ask for your ultimate allegiance. So it really all comes down to worship. What Revelation is telling you over and over again in all kinds of different ways is, look, worship Jesus. Serve Jesus. Live for Jesus. That's what you're meant to do. That's what you're made to do. That's what it's going to all be about in the future. And that's what you're to be doing now. And so in chapter 14 of Revelation, you have these three visions, these three angels who come. And we see again in chapter 14 a picture of God's people in heaven worshiping him, right? Giving him glory, ascribing praise to him. And here's what the angels, first of all, verse 6, an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. Second angel, verse 8, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Remember, this world system is passing away. The worldly city is going to be done away with. Don't give yourself to that. Verse 9, a third angel, don't worship the beast or receive its image because that will, you'll incur the wrath of God. See, what, what the vision they're giving is, look, worship Jesus and, and all of this will play out just fine. If you proclaim the gospel, if you recognize the brokenness of the city of man and avoid giving yourself to it, and if you're aware of, you're seeing through the realities of the beast and the attempts of human society to totalize everything and ask for our ultimate allegiance, you'll be fine. Worship Jesus. That's what you're here for. It all comes down to worship. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you're already a worshiper of Jesus, this is just saying, good, let that percolate out into every aspect of your life and every aspect of your behavior and every aspect of your being. That is your primary identity and that is to be worked out in every sphere of life and culture. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a worshiper of Jesus, 
John is beckoning you. He's calling you. Listen, you want to worship Jesus. Everything else you can give yourself to is temporary. It's passing away. It's not going to last. It can't deliver on the promises it makes. There is only one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and who can deliver on the promise to save you, to change you, to transform you, to give your life meaning and purpose and significance and to deliver you into a glorious future. And that's Jesus. So worship Him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the gospel is not something that is merely personal and private. Thank you that you did not write the Bible and you did not send your Son so that we can just figure out how to have a better personal life in our souls but that the gospel has implications for all of culture and all of life and for society and politics and all the structures and institutions of human existence, that all of those things are subject to the dominion and the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so for God, for for my friends that are here this morning who work in various aspects of society, I pray that they would be moved by a vision of the Lord's Prayer, a vision of what does it mean for your kingdom to come in that sphere of their influence, in that aspect of society. And I pray for those here this morning who are struggling with the question of, should I worship Jesus? Should I follow Jesus? I pray they would see the temporariness and the transience of everything else that they would give themselves to. God, we, we, we give ourselves to all kinds of things expecting that they will deliver on ultimately what we want. And none of them ever do and none of them ever can. And so I pray that you would ignite our hearts with worship and with passion for the Lord Jesus and that we would begin to see through all of life around us and see the great significance of your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And that we would be wise to the ways that Satan and evil and sin have broken and destroyed our world. God, make us agents of redemption. Make us people who love the world and serve the world and change the world for your glory. Amen.